Hey everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. We're not looking at the dark side of Washington, DC? <laughs> this isn't the Tapper Report. I thought I was on, I I was on left, right, and center. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so what are we doing this week? Well, we've got Sandman number 17 and 18, a smattering of filler issues. Well, filler's a little strong, but side stories, certainly, before we get to the next big arc. Let's call them standalone issues. Yeah. These are four standalone issues that Neil Gaiman wrote between Doll's House and the next story arc, which is called The Season of Mists. Oh. These four standalones are sometimes referred to as Dream Country. That's the title of this trade paperback, but we're going to talk about two of them today, beginning with Sandman number 17, Calliope. So, as usual, Calliope is written by Neil Gaiman, but we have a new artist named Kelly Jones. Right, Kelly Jones on pencils and Malcolm Jones third on inks. I wonder if they're related. Probably not. Well, in any case, I was familiar with Kelly Jones mainly for the Magneto miniseries that he drew in the 90s. Now, the art for that particular book was not good. So imagine my surprise when I found that this art by Kelly Jones is good. Right, yeah. Well, he's done some Batman, too, right? Yeah, yeah. He's got a very, a very interesting-looking Batman in his repertoire. Well, what do you want to say about this style before we get into it? Well, he, he makes very heavy use of shadow. I noticed that, too. And that, I think, was true in the Magneto miniseries as well. Obviously, like, who the inker is, who the colorist is, yeah. these things make a lot of difference. But, yeah, he does, he does sort of resemble Sam Keith mm -hmm. a little more. He's got some very strongly caricatured character designs, especially the character we're going to meet in a couple of pages, Erasmus Fry almost cartoonish or grotesque and it creates a very distinctive look particularly in combination with his facility with shadow and in comparison with some more realistic character designs too yeah and he's got what you might call a new take on morpheus which is pretty awesome looking i have to say all right very like gothic but modern at the same time but let's get into it the cover is by dave mckeon and it's a naked woman, uh, arms clutched over her breasts, and she's framed by peacock feathers. Yeah, and she's sort of gazing wide-eyed into the sky. Mm-hmm. Now, we open in May 1986 with this character saying, I don't have any idea. This is Richard Mack. Yeah, and somebody, uh, somebody named Felix, has brought him a bezoar. Right, a trichobezoar specifically. This is a clot of hair cut from the stomach of a young woman who habitually chewed on her hair and swallowed it by accident. Right, so it forms a huge mass in her stomach, which is smelly. And you can tell that it's smelly just from the way it's drawn, by the way. It looks gross. Did a yeah. good, Kelly Jones did a good job. It looks the gross. man can draw a good bezoar. <laughs> <laughs> but my thing is, what does Richard possibly want with this thing without knowing what it is? Like, why does he need it explained to him, and yet somehow he asked for it? Well, as we're going to find out, he has made a deal that he would provide the Bezor. And he's also made a deal with his Dr. Felix, who wants 
Maddox to sign a copy of his novel, The Cabaret of Dr. Caligari. That's a pun, motherfucker. Yeah, that's an obvious reference to The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920 film directed by Robert Vina. Directed by who? I think it's Vina. Could be wine. Just say it one more time. Robert Vina? <laughs> All right. There's not an R on there. It's just, it's just an E. In any case... Could be Vine. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's the cabaret rather than the cabinet. That's good good stuff there. And we find out after Felix leaves that, uh, in fact, the sequel to The Cabaret of Dr. Caligari is long overdue. Yeah, he... Maddox has a phone call with his publisher demanding his next manuscript. He says that it's almost finished, and after hanging up, he admits he hasn't written a word. Yeah, yeah, so weeks overdue already, and as Thomas Jefferson would say, it isn't begun. <laughs> so with Bezor in hand, actually it's in a bag because it's gross, he walks yeah. to the home of Erasmus Fry. I hope he didn't just drop that in a bag and go like out the door, like you really want to wash your hands first. Yeah, probably, although I assume this one has been like dried or something. Still, though. I mean, you're not just going to like pick up an owl pellet and yeah, <laughs> walk out the door. Those are dry. <laughs> Fucking owl pellets. I really hope I'm done handling owl pellets this time. <laughs> Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. <laughs> the owl pellets, man. You could stop for fish and chip. You don't know. So he goes to this guy, Erasmus Fry. On his way there, we have a very well-drawn cityscape. Here, very moody. Mm-hmm. And that, that's an awful big fish. City lights across the Thames. So he goes to see this guy, Fry, and Fry is just a creepy old man. Just not, to be confused, old man. not to be confused with Stephen Fry, who is not ugly or creepy. Right, he's a lovely charming He's a person. national treasure. Yeah. Not of our nation. Also not to be <laughs> confused with Philip J. Fry. Who's that? The guy from Futurama. Oh, right. So yeah, and he is creepy. He's also just like, he's also just abrasive. You know, he says mean things in uh, situations where he doesn't need to. I'm not sorry that I'm not dressed for visitors. When you get to my age, you don't give a toss what you look like. <laughs> well, Fry has demanded the Bezor, and he goes on about how they have healing powers. Yeah, and he mentions John D here. Right, that's Queen Elizabeth's sorcerer John D, not the John D that we've met in this series. I wonder if it's the same dude. No, of course it's not the same dude. That, that wouldn't make any sense. Well, yeah, we knew his mother. Right, yeah, he was born, you know, in the 20th century. Right. Maddock is furious to be delayed here, basically distracted by Fry's ruminations on Bezor's. He's furious, mainly that he hasn't written anything in a year. Will you shut up? I haven't written a word in a year. Nothing I haven't thrown away. Do you know what that's like? When it's just you and a blank sheet of paper? When you can't think of a single thing worth saying, a single character that people should believe in, a single story that hasn't been told a thousand times before? Of course, I know what it's like. Don't be a fool, boy. Let me see my present. So he says he's going to put the Bezor with the rest of them. And then he says, I suppose that you want her now. Did you bring any clothes? Clothes? I didn't know I... Never mind. I have an old coat you may use. One more thing is that he talks about the smell of the bezoar, which comes from particles of partially digested food stuck in it. So yeah, it's stinky. That's fucking the nastiest shit I've ever heard. Yeah, well... <laughs> Why do you want that? 
Well, you know what's interesting here too is that he talks a bunch about the healing powers of the Bezor, and he's an old fellow. So I, it seems like it's setting up that like maybe he wants it for mystical healing. Mm. But eventually, we seem to find out that that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, as we'll find out soon. So Fry explains that he caught her on Mount Helicon in 1927. When he was 27. Same age as the century, mate. <laughs> I'll be 87 next year. Yeah, he, he says that he caught her with rituals, and I immediately knew that it was going to be a muse. Yeah. I mean, I guess they've forecasted that pretty well. Well, yeah, it's Calliope. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the name. Fair enough. I just knew that it was going to be a muse. He says that he doesn't need her anymore, so he's giving her to Maddox and opens up the locked room where he keeps her in the dark. And this is where we get our title, as we get a full-page shot of Calliope, a naked, terribly thin blonde woman. Yeah, now, it seems like he just traded her for a piece of yucky hair. Yeah, that's true. So I wonder if, when he says that he'll put the Bezor with all the others, if he's been collecting various treasures from Richard over the course of some period of time. Like Richard has been supplying him with treasures for a while in exchange for Calliope? Yeah. That's one way to think about it. If you were like a black market dealer in mystical monsters, hmm, th that would also be, that would actually possibly be a completely different interesting story as if he had like a bunch of mythological figures locked up and was trading things for them. Yeah. Not that Calliope's a monster. No, not really. So Fry explains that this is indeed Calliope, the youngest of the nine muses. She was Homer's muse, he says, so she ought to be good enough for you. Calliope is taken aback to be traded this way. He had promised to free her. You writer! You liar! <laughs> he says, Fry says, put not your trust in princes, and follows that up with, Writers are liars, my dear. Surely you have realized that by now. And so the aforementioned coat was to wrap around the naked Calliope as they go out in the street. And then Fry says, I never want to see either of you again. Which, again, just rude. Right. Put not your trust in princes, by the way, is from Psalm 146. And as they leave, he shouts after them, However, if you ever happen to feel a spark of gratitude, you might want to persuade some publisher to bring Here Comes a Candle back into print. I was particularly proud of that one. You didn't have anything to do with it, mate. That's a way of looking at it. Maddock takes Calliope to his house and locks her in the topmost room, sort of like an attic, not sure if it's an attic or just an unused room in his house. And then the narration tells us, His first action was to rape her, nervously, on the musty old camp bed. She's not even human, he told himself. She's thousands of years old. But her flesh was warm and her breath was sweet, and she choked back tears like a child whenever he hurt her. It occurred to him momentarily that the old man might have cheated him, given him a real girl, that he, Rick Maddock, might possibly have done something wrong, even criminal. Yuck! Yes, you did. You did something I wrong. I hated that so much. Like, it's supposed to be okay just because she's a mythological figure? I don't think we're supposed to think it's okay. That's how Maddox thinks about it. Well, yeah, sure. I, obviously, the uh, the story here does not approve of Maddox's actions or Fry's, but 
nonetheless, his way of thinking about it is just so wrong. Like, you know, the idea, A, that it's, that it's not, that he can convince himself that he's not doing anything wrong when he rapes her, but also the idea that, like, you know, has he done something wrong or even criminal? Like, doing something wrong is a minor thing. Breaking the law would be much more important, which is, I think, the reverse of how most people think about it. Yeah, know? yeah. With Most people put ethical concerns over legal concerns. Yeah, I note that the narration here gives us his excuse and then gives us the, the sensory evidence that he's wrong, that he's lying to himself. So... It sort of makes it clear that the lie is not even convincing Richard Maddock. Yeah, although it's not as if we see a lot of guilt as this story plays out. No. But in any case, something's working because he immediately starts starts writing and he writes for three hours before he realizes he's begun his second novel. Now that she's alone, Calliope summons three other muses. Their names, and I'm going to try to do the Greek names are Maliti, Nemi, and Robert Vina. <laughs> oh, no. The third one is Aeod, and they sort of resemble the Hecate. They sure do. One's old, one's middle-aged, and one's young and beautiful, and as we've seen before, these identities shift between them from panel to panel. Incidentally, those names mean practice, memory, and song. And these three are the classic muses. Apparently there were three before there were believed to be nine. So when there were only three, it was these three. Maliti, Nemi, and Ao. Did you look up what Robert Vina means? No. <laughs> no, he's a German silent film director. Fair enough. Yeah, so Calliope is, uh, is begging these muses to free her. But they explain that supernatural forces have been having a bad time recently. Yeah. The Endless are having a bad time, and the gods, which are less powerful than the Endless, uh, some of them have even died. Yeah, and furthermore, she was lawfully caught according to the mysteries, they say. Now, I liked this part because it went back to my ponderings on the previous page, where he says he'd done something wrong, maybe even criminal. They talk about how she's lawfully bound, and she says it may be lawful, but it's not just. Right. Like, I guess this kind of captivity is part of their mythological role, but it's not cool. Oh, so so you're saying that, like, sort of throughout mythology, muses are always, like, captured and abused by artists? I don't know if it's always as literal as it's presented here, and that's perhaps research that I should have done. But yeah, like, the capture... The capture and often the rape of mythological women creatures is definitely damn near omnipresent in Greek myth. Yeah, I wonder if that's part of the point that Gaiman is trying to make, too, just by making it much more literal and horrific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something we should talk about here on this page. Well, go ahead. Which is that Kelly Jones has drawn Calliope to be very, like, sexually appealing. Mm-hmm. And given that he's drawing her as sexually appealing, sometimes at the same time as we're seeing her be raped, and throughout the issue at least, at the same time as she's in this captivity, I thought that that was uncomfortably objectifying. I think that you have a point. I think you have a good point there. I do want to point out, like, I think that her posture and the way that she's drawn 
come across very different when she's alone and sort of more self-possessed versus when she's being portrayed as a victim. She seems much more fearful, for example, on the previous page when she's cast almost entirely in shadow mm. versus here. But it's not completely without grazing on the uncomfortable sexy rape victim trope. Yeah. So this was the 80s, but I, I would have hoped that they would have more awareness even then than to kind of derive cheap thrills from a from a rape victim, which mm -hmm. is not cool. Not that the characterization of her is poor. She's a character who's given like who's given depth and independent thought like from the beginning, mm -hmm. you know? But but yeah, just the just the fact that the art seems to kind of revel in her beauty and she's, you know, naked all the time. Not ideal. Yeah, that's fair. Now, the muses point out that Calliope used to date one of the Endless, the Dream King, and even have his child. What? That boy child who went to Hades for his lady love and died in Thrace, torn apart by the sisters of the Frenzy for his sacrilege. What? Yeah, that's a reference to, well, that's a reference to Greek mythology, and maybe we shouldn't talk about which one. Huh. <sighs> what a twist. But... Calliope doesn't want Oneros, as they call him, his help. Yeah, that's a that's a new name for Morpheus that we haven't seen used before, I don't think. Yeah, he did something to her that he hates her for, and she hates him, and she will not accept his help. But, they tell her, he can't even help, because he's also been captured by a mortal. This is 1986, and Morpheus hasn't been freed from Roderick Burgess's prison yet. I'm sorry, my little one. Your prayers were wasted. There is nothing we can do for you, and nothing you can do but hope. But as they disappear, she wishes for them to send someone, anyone, even Oneros. Yeah, and we get three panels of her sexy begging here, and mm -hmm. yeah, I don't like it. That's not okay. Calliope recalls her capture in 1927. She says she had returned to the world only for a brief time. Right, she came back out of nostalgia, right? Yeah, so apparently maybe she's moved on from being a god, uh, in physical embodiment at least. But, uh, while she was bathing, Thrice seized her scroll and burned it, which I guess according to the rites makes him her master. Yeah, I wrote that down. I was curious about that, but we never really come back to it. I guess it's just something we're supposed to understand. I, I think it's a mythology thing. She's got a scroll, but she has to leave it on the shore when she bathes, and that makes it possible for it to be seized, and, and therefore for her to be exploited. Fry looks like the Joker here. He really does! I noticed that too! I'm gonna talk about some German silent films. He looks like, he looks like Cesare from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, is that... Okay. So it's probably an intentional visual reference. You know, it very well could be. And then Maddock comes into the attic, wanting celebration sex for having finished his novel. Come here, gorgeous. Let's make two and a half minutes of squelching noises. He is such a prick. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is gross in a whole different way, because this is not just rape as mythological exploitation, as the required means of, of ritual whatever. Right, it's like he raped her before to overcome his writer's block, and this time he's going to rape her for fun. And before he does, he says, let's party. Yeah. yeah. What a 
douchebag. She, uh, she begs to be released, having provided the novel, but he refuses. And then we cut to a montage. Years pass as Maddox is successful in a number of fields. Wait here. a minute. We see a, a mock-up of the cover, and it says, By Rick Maddock. Oh, yes. R-I-C. Now, now he's going by Rick with a C. Ugh! <laughs> that also makes you hate him? Well, I don't know. I don't hate Rick Ocasek. Mm, okay. Mm. I'm not sure how I feel about this. On the one hand, Rick Ocasek. <laughs> On the other hand, Rick Maddock. I don't know if this is quite as bad as... Rick with just a C. But on this page, as he's at a party for the release of his second or third novel, he's saying, actually, I do tend to regard myself as a feminist writer. Oh, yeah, that was... That's sleaze. Yeah, that was awful, too. Like, I mean, obviously, like, that's very intentional on the part of Gaiman. Yeah. Like, poking fun at how he's, you know, co-opting the term feminist to position himself as cool when he actually has a rape victim locked in his attic. Right. But yeah, the montage just shows that he becomes increasingly more successful. He's validated both materially and artistically. He's offered a movie to direct and all this stuff. And and he gets to be more and more of a prick, basically. As it yeah, it, it shows him... It shows him disdaining and mistreating the people who helped him succeed. In one panel, he's firing his agent because he wants a better one. And in the very next panel, he's joking before an awards show audience about having fired his agent. I want to point out here that one of his successive novels is Eagle Stones, which appear as a major plot item in American Gods. They sure do. Yeah, I noticed that as well. But one thing that's happening throughout this montage is that a great deal of time is passing, a couple of years, and we come to a point where Morpheus is no longer imprisoned. Right, and without warning, we have a scene here where Calliope is getting a visit from Morpheus. She recognizes him instantly. Oh, it's you. Calliope begs by the love he once bore her to get Maddox to release her. Now, I wondered where this fell in Morpheus's timeline. Like, are we to understand that this takes place after the doll's house? That, you know, this is the the first time he gets a chance to come see her? Or I wonder if he did it more immediately upon his own release. I think that the present tense part of this story is supposed to be happening right where we left the character, basically. The last date in the montage is March 1990, and I think this issue is May 1990. Okay. Maddock is being interviewed on TV when he is compared to the late Erasmus Fry, and he's shocked and dismayed to learn that Fry is dead, having poisoned himself. Yeah, we also see on this page, less interesting than Fry killing himself, we see, one, that the host who's interviewing him refers to Fry's work and his own as romances, mm -hmm. which, you know, just seems so... Wrong. Yeah, as so a malappropriate, considering that he's this super sleazy guy. We also see that he has a he's sporting a new haircut and an earring. Yes, very modern. And is that Death's insignia that he's wearing as an earring? Yep, it's an Ankh earring. So apparently, Fry did not want the Bezor for survival purposes, since one of its uses is to cure poison, and he died by poison. Let's see. 
ate the damn thing. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't even want to think about that. I mean, you know, depression is a strange thing. Like, it's entirely possible that he was taking the Bezoar thinking that it would help him live forever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it even would have, this being a supernatural comic book. But until he just decided that he didn't want to live forever. Right. You know, and right. it's not to say that that's a consistent a consistent active decision on his part. I, I suppose it's also possible that he was terminally ill and poisoned himself to end it on his own terms, which would be consistent with his decision that he didn't need Calliope anymore. I feel like there's a story that's suggested behind the scenes of this issue where Calliope and Fry have a, an actual an actual split where their relationship, so to speak, uh, you know, which was always exploitative and one-sided, but in which their relationship somehow sours to the point where he's not able to work even with her. Yeah, it could be. I, I sort of just saw him as being done, right? Like, he was completely artistically fulfilled mm -hmm. and not interested in working anymore. But who knows? Well, apparently one of the last things he did was to write a letter to his old publisher begging them to bring back one of his books. And Maddock realizes it must be Here Comes a Candle. It was a good book. Perhaps my favorite book when I was growing up. Very moving and honest and strange. Poor old sod. Fresh from getting this news, he returns home to find that there's a man in his house. Much like Harrison Ford. <laughs> this is a super scary looking Morpheus. Really angular features, big wild hair, modernist trench coat. Yeah, he's drawing him a little bit more burly and masculine and threatening than we're used to. It's very 80s. There's zippers all over the jacket that he's wearing. But, you know, it's also sort of menacing in a metallic, angular sort of way. Yeah, he's, he's really tall and spindly here. And it's a really nice combination, too, of just, like, his strange appearance and his more modern clothes, more so than we usually see him in. He also has his own creepy way of drawing Morpheus's creepy eyes, which really works. Right. His eyes are cast into shadow, and we see lights, much like the lights we saw across the river a few pages ago, in the depth of those wells. Yeah, for sure. Maddox tries to frighten Morpheus out of the apartment, but Morpheus does not intimidate I don't know who you are, but I want you out of here now, or I'm calling the police. Be quiet. You are keeping a woman imprisoned here, Richard Maddock, keeping her against her will. I have come to request that you set her free. And it's sort of satisfying to see how Maddock just deflates here. In a matter of a couple of seconds, he goes from threatening to call the police to terrified that Morpheus is going to. I will not call any human agency. Just let her go. But you don't understand. I need her. If I didn't have her, I wouldn't be able to write. I wouldn't have ideas. I can't free her yet. Not now. Maybe in a year or so. Look, I have money. An awful lot of money, and... Hold your tongue. She has been held captive for more than 60 years, stripped of all possessions, demeaned, abused, and hurt. I know how she must feel. And you will not free her because you need the ideas? You disgust me, Richard Maddock. You want ideas, you want dreams, you want stories, and ideas you will have. Ideas in abundance. Oh man, that's badass. Yeah. Maddock wakes as if from a dream. He, he, he 
runs to Calliope to blame her for his weird dream, but she says she isn't doing it. And she gives him the best look when she hears his accusation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's Oneros, her lover and the father of her son. And Maddox says, I didn't know you'd ever had a son. You know nothing about me, Richard Maddox. I am real, Richard. I am more than a receptacle for your seed or an inspiration for your tales. Still, it is too late now to let that concern you. Goodbye, Richard Maddox. Enjoy your party. So Richard starts walking to this party. But as he stops at a newsstand, he has an idea for a story. People at a party, partying against the apocalypse. Isn't that the Mask of the Red Death? Yeah. Also, this is the end. Oh, yeah. Parts of the world's end. Hmm. Well, that's more people having a party in blithe ignorance of the apocalypse. <laughs> he just gets more and more ideas, and he grabs the newsstand vendor and shakes him as he desperately tells him his ideas. And Maddox gets a scary panel here with his eyes and teeth glowing, just like the one in Collectors. Yeah, although different art team now. Yeah. Well, not a different anchor. In any case, he's basically collapsing under the weight of all of these ideas that are coming to him. Two old women taking a weasel on holiday. Griffins shouldn't marry. Vampires don't dance. A man who inherits a library card to the library in Alexandria. A rosebush, a nightingale, and a black rubber dog collar. So this is the state he's in when he's found by none other than Felix. His old pal Felix, who is a doctor, we remember, who gave him the bezoar in the first place. Maddox in bad shape. He's been writing the ideas on the wall in blood from his fingers. Yeah, this is a montage sort of roughly cut up by lightning bolt shaped <laughs> boundaries, but Felix basically tries to help him and isn't able. To make the ideas stop, he tells Felix to go to his house and let out the woman in the attic. Felix thinks this is crazy, but he agrees. Yeah, there's a panel of him scratching his face here that sort of reminded me of a Peter Gabriel album cover. Oh, yeah? Yeah, one of the self-titled albums. Yeah, but his fingers are ruined from scraping them against the walls to write down his ideas, and he, like, scratches them across his face in just in being overwhelmed. So Felix goes to Richard's house. He ascends the stairs and opens the door. This is just a cool sequence of panels. Felix alone in the dark, these vast empty rooms. He opens the attic door and there's no one inside. There's nothing in the attic but a copy of Here Comes a Candle. And we can see from the tagline on the cover of the book too, she was his muse and the slave of his lusts. So from that we can tell that here Comes a Candle is a fictionalization specifically of the relationship between Fry and Eliope. Felix looks crestfallen and picks up the book and leaves. And then we're somewhere with Morpheus and Calliope, Calliope now being free. What will you do now, Calliope? I don't know. Return to the minds of humanity, I suspect. My time is over, and this age of the world is not my age. You have changed, Oneros. In the old days, you would have left me to rot forever without turning a hair. Do you still hate me for what I did? No. I no longer hate you, Calliope. I have learned much in recent times, and... No matter. I do not hate you, child. She asks him to release Richard, and he agrees. And then she asks, Maybe I could visit you in the dream realm? It would be nice to see you again, properly. What do you think? 
I do not think that that would be a good idea, Calliope. And so they bid goodbye, she wishing him good fortune. Meanwhile, on Earth, all memory of it is fading from Richard Maddock's mind. Right, as Felix comes back, Maddock not only is no longer overwhelmed by these ideas, but we see the image of Morpheus fading from his mind. Yeah, and I thought the implication here was that he was left as devoid of ideas as he had been before. Yeah, exactly. It's gone. I've got no idea anymore. No idea at all. Now, I thought it was interesting that Calliope asked as a favor of Morpheus to release Richard. That was awfully compassionate of her. Yeah. Something she clearly had no reason to do. Yeah, that's a good point. In a way, it's in keeping with what we've seen of Morpheus before, that he he rarely exercises supernatural punishment as a matter of justice, more than just to accomplish his goals. Once Calliope is freed, neither of them sees any need to punish Richard any further. Yeah, it, it is consistent, although in this case, it's almost like Morpheus wants to continue to punish him, but Calliope doesn't. Yeah. She is more compassionate than he is in that sense. And remember, Alex Burgess is still in a state of waking nightmare. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I don't think Morpheus would have given a moment's thought to leaving Richard Maddock troubled with insane visions for the rest of his life. Right, he will absolutely leave somebody in a state of perpetual punishment. So there's a lot that's uncomfortable in that issue, certainly. Yeah, it's... You know, it's a spooky story, and I think that there's a lot of good character work going on in it. It's it, important that we see that Morpheus has forgiven Calliope and is now able to work to help somebody else. He, he denies it, but she points out that that's a huge change in him. Yeah, and it introduces a new, really compelling character. Gaiman's been introducing a lot of new characters, often without really doing much with them after introducing them. In Calliope? Well, for the last several issues. But yes, Calliope specifically is, a, is an interesting new character. Mm -hmm. And maybe she'll come back and maybe she won't. Yeah, well, but, she has a history with Morpheus, clearly. Yeah, and it seems like that's something that's going to be explored. You know, I don't even think that in the writing of this issue that it really sensationalizes or tries to make rape appealing. Like, it depicts rape, but it depicts it so clearly with condemnation that the writing itself isn't sensational. Right, exactly. It's just in the art. And it's a shame because Kelly Jones does such a good job on this issue. Mm -hmm. His rendering of Morpheus and Erasmus Fry are are so good. And and his his renderings of Calliope are good, too. It's just that they are so, like, beautiful in a sexualized way yeah. that it's not appropriate for the mm -hmm. storyline that's going on. Yeah. We're touching again on one of Gaiman's favorite topics, which is views abuse, in this case, very literal. And I think it's fitting that Calliope points out, I am a real person. Yeah, both I like in that the sense, a lot. Both in the sense, like, in the context of the story of being a rape victim. Like, that is something... That is something that needs to be pointed out, that these people who are victimized are real people. Right, she's not thought of as a person by her attacker. Right, and also in the sense 
that she is a muse, she is an inspiration. And the people in a writer's life that form the inspiration for his work, it should be remembered that those are real people with real relationships also. Yeah, who often bear little resemblance, as we saw in 24 Hours, to their fictionalized counterparts. Yeah. Well, that brings us to Sandman issue number 18, A Dream of a Thousand Cats. Once again, we have Kelly Jones on pencils and Neil Gaiman writing. Yep. The cover has a large, elaborate golden frame bearing the title of this story. It's broken in one corner, and inside we have a cat leaping from a pillar into a cloud of sand, leaping perhaps for the break in the frame. Yeah, hey, frames are back. Yeah, it's a cool image. I was disappointed that there was only one drawing of a cat on this cover. Well, this is the issue for you. <laughs> Listeners, you have waited with bated breath to find out where you can see great cat drawings. <laughs> this issue has some really good cat drawings in it. I was excited. All right, so on page one, we have a cute white kitten, and it is the cutest white kitten. This is a very excellent drawing of a cat. It just looks so precious. And he or she is being put to bed by her human masters. Yeah, and it seems like this man, Don, is more enamored with his cat than he is with his lover. Right. Now, as soon as they're out of sight, another cat, a shaggy brown stray, is at the window telling their white kitten, It's tonight. She's here. I don't know how I can get out. I can't get through any of the wall openings. Up there, a clear hole is partly opened. You can get out through there. Shake your tail, little one. We mustn't miss this. And there's a cool panel. As the white kitten jumps from a second-story window and leaps to freedom, and there's this cool panel looking up at the cat flying. Well, yeah, and she has to make it to the tree, or else she'll splat. But she does. Yeah, so they hurry to meet this legendary cat that they are meeting. Well, we don't know that they're meeting a cat. They just says... What will she be like? We're going to see her, you know, things like that. I want to know what she has to say. And I thought maybe they were going to see Catwoman. Oh, yeah. She lives in the DC universe. <laughs> yeah. She, that would be a very inspirational a, figure for cats. It's a thing that could happen. Under no circumstances should Catwoman be surrounded by cats, particularly if she is in an alley. Well, like, I liked Batman Returns. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is not this argument is not the point of this podcast. They are met by a tabby who is going to the same place who is curious but doesn't see the point of this. How can you tell it's a tabby? A tabby means a cat with like stripes. Oh. Well, uh, all right then. The next page we get a two-page spread of a huge graveyard which is chock full of cats and it just looks so Eerie and gothic and awesome. Yeah, this is a magnificently detailed graveyard. And this also happens to be our title page. Now, another thing that I noticed is we see the regular credits that you'd get. Neil Gaiman is the writer. Kelly Jones is the penciler. Malcolm Jones III is the inker. Karen Berger is the editor, etc. But we also see featuring characters created by Gaiman, Keith, and Dringenberg. So, Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg are credited in every issue now. Has that been going on all along? That credit is included in Calliope. Perhaps as soon as they had an issue that Dringenberg didn't work on. Well, I guess they had a Chris Piccolo issue a couple 
couple back. That was a ways back. Yeah. That was back during the John Dee story arc. Wasn't it? It was the one where Morpheus kills Garrett Sanford. Oh, you're right. But yeah, maybe it's because the original art team is completely absent from this issue. But yeah, now we've got a creator credit on every issue. So, there's this Siamese cat, and she leaps down from this huge angel statue onto a high rock overlooking those assembled, and she greets them. Sisters, brothers, good hunting. Thank you for coming to listen to me, for your willingness to hear my message. And I hope that when I have finished, some of you may share my dream. Oh, she said dream. <laughs> it's a Sandman issue. Some dream shit is probably going to happen, I bet. Yeah, I think you called that one. We also have to take a shot, I guess. <laughs> oh my god, we'd be dead. <laughs> the Constantine issue would have killed us. Which, if you die of alcohol poisoning while reading a Constantine issue, I think you're doing it right. <laughs> Constantine shows up to, to carry your spirit into hell. <laughs> so she begins to tell her story. She says, once she was a pet. I, like many of you, was in the thrall of human beings, living in their world, plaything, possession, and toy. And I fooled myself, as perhaps many of you fool yourselves, that I was in control of my own life. They fed me, did they not? They gave me comfort and warmth. And what did I give them in return? Some affection, perhaps? My presence? Little enough, really, for what they offered. But one day there was an orange tomcat that she saw through the window, and she wanted him. It was my time for love, and he was my choice for lover. They made love, and sometime later she gave birth to a litter of kittens. But her humans were not happy about this. Yeah. Now, they apparently care a lot that she is a purebred cat, and a purebred blue point Siamese. And her kittens, seeing as they were just with a random neighborhood cat, aren't worth diddly squat. Yeah, so they are taken away and put in a bag, and the bag is tied to a rock and thrown in the lake. Yeah, that is animal cruelty and is not okay. I knew then that I had been fooling myself, that we were subordinate, that while we lived with humanity, we could not call ourselves free. This does a really good job of, like, expressing the pathos of a house cat. Right, right. <laughs> like, you're not supposed to just kill the kittens if you can't raise them, but most of us wouldn't regard it as a life-altering tragedy. But to the Siamese, it absolutely is. Yeah, I think this page marks a really important and interesting shift in this comic. Because, mm -hmm. like, up until now, it's been a sort of, you know, charming, but fairly standard, like, oh, the cats have a secret life and society of their own when mm -hmm. we're not looking, you know, kind of story. And at this point, it takes a, a twist into much darker and maybe more gothic, if you will, kind of territory. Yeah, if cats are actually this intelligent, then that's a horror story. <laughs> right. So the cat prays to the carrion kind and to the king of cats. I like this part here also, like, where the humans are trying to convince themselves that she doesn't even understand. Yeah. You know, that her children have all been killed. I mean, look at her. She's probably relieved. She's practically a kitten herself. She would have exhausted herself. So she prays in front of the fireplace, and she falls asleep. And she finds herself in a desert of bones. Man, that's cool, too. Yeah, this looks really great. 
I almost want to make the comparison between, like, Kelly Jones and Sam Keith here. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the work is much more Sam Keithy than it's been since Sam Keith left the book. The Kelly Jones is a lot closer to Sam Keith's style than Dringenberg has been. And Mike Dringenberg was, yeah. Yeah, we're certainly getting some, some wild vistas in this one. Some really imaginative worlds. And so this skull-faced vulture appears and asks, Why have you ventured to the heart of the dreaming little cat? There is nothing here for you. I have come here for justice. I have come for revelation. I have come for wisdom. And the vulture answers that justice is not to be found anywhere. And wisdom? Wisdom is no part of dreams, Lithe Walker, though dreams are a part of the sum of each life's experiences, which are the only wisdom that matters. But, he says, revelation is to be found in the world of dreams. It can be yours, but only if your heart is strong. The vulture tells her to go to the mountain, and in the mountain is a cave, and in the cave lives the cat of dreams, the ruler of this sleeping world. Seek him out, but beware. The way to his cave is hard, and a little cat could come to much harm. All places are the same to me. I will find the cave, then, and find my answers. I am not afraid. I thought that was cool. I thought especially that all places are the same to me is such a, a good way to encapsulate the feeling of grief mm -hmm. that she's going through. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if this Vulture character is meant to be Dream's Raven at that time. Yeah, that was the impression that I got. Okay. Or, or the way that the Siamese sees Dream's Raven as she's in the dreaming. So she sets out on her long journey, and she passes through the Wood of Ghosts, where the dead and the lost whispered continually, promised me worlds if I would only stop and play with them. I closed my ears to their entreaties. At one point I thought I heard my children calling me, but I straightened my tail, and I walked forward. So that's a familiar story from Greek mythology. Walking undaunted, despite the calls of your dead loved ones behind you. Second reference in two issues. After the Wood of Ghosts, she has three more challenges. She has to pass through the cold, and through the wet, and through the darkness. And in the cold, she says every step is misery, and in the wet, it tries to wash away her memories. And in the dark, everything that makes her what she is was sucked away. She no longer knew why she was walking, but she continued walking. Finally, she found herself at the mouth of the cave, which was guarded, as we have seen, by the three guardians, Wyvern, Griffin, and Hippogriff. Why should the Dream Lord be disturbed by one such as you? I have come too far to be turned away now, Griffin. I will state my business to the Dream Lord, and only to him. I am a cat, and I keep my own counsel. Enter then, pussycat, but be warned. Dreams have their price. And in the cave, she meets Morpheus, a giant black cat with glowing pools for eyes. It's the cat equivalent! There's a cat equivalent of everything, just like in Akewood. Yep, we've seen him in a couple of different human guises, and in this comic we meet the cat version of Morpheus. She explains that she's come in search of understanding. She wants to know how it is that her children can be taken away. Why could they take my children from me? Why do we live as we do? I don't understand. So he tells her to look into his eyes, and she will see the truth. And then we get a big reveal here, mostly as the setup for some even cooler stuff. 
which is, all cats can see futures and can see echoes of the past. We can watch the passage of creatures from the infinity of now, from all the worlds like ours, only fractionally different, and we follow them with our eyes, ghost things, and the humans see nothing. All of which is only set up for the fact that what she sees in Morpheus's eyes is even crazier than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's just a little fun fact. <laughs> Almost. Fun cat fact. They can see ghosts in alternate universes. Many, many seasons ago, cats truly ruled this world. We were larger then, and this whole world was created for our pleasure. We roamed it as we would, taking what we wanted. In those times, humans were tiny creatures, no larger than we are now, and the humans would groom us and feed us and pet us. And when the moon shone full, we would hunt them and we would eat part of them, but chiefly we would hunt them, for they were more delightful to hunt even than birds, and back then mice were too small and insignificant for us to deign to touch. Yeah, yeah, cats hunt for sport. Which, if you listen to Tighten Up the Defense, you should know that the Silver Surfer should know. <laughs> I'm reminded here, too, of another Neil Gaiman story, Anansi Boys. In that novel, he has the concept of cat being upset that stories are no longer all about cat. Like, stories used to be about feral predators and the danger of being eaten by them. Until Anansi came along and made stories about cleverness and trickery instead. That's pretty cool. Also cool is this last panel where it's complete blackness except for the moon and the eyes of the cat and the teeth of the cat. But then one day there was a golden-furred human who had a dream and who walked the world sharing his dream with other humans. Dreams shape the world. Dreams create the world anew every night. And he tells them if they dream of a world in which they are the dominant species, that it will come true if enough of them dream it at once. Yeah, and twice he says, dreams shape the world. There's, in the background of, in this shot, three of the people watching are a man and two women, one of them pregnant. I wondered if that was supposed to be Adam, Eve, and Lilith. Oh, yeah, quite possibly. This guy kind of looks like Jesus, too, which doesn't really fit. Interesting. But it did seem to be... The, the golden bird guy? Yeah, it did seem to be semi-intentional. He looks like, you know... European conception of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Classical art European Jesus. <laughs> so at first nothing happened, but one night a thousand humans dreamed the dream at once, and the world changed. Yeah, one night enough of them dreamed. It did not take many of them. A thousand, perhaps. No more. And the next day, everything was different. Humans were huge, and cats were tiny. Humans were the dominant species, and we were prey to them, to dogs, to their metal machines. Pray to the world the humans had brought with them. Morpheus explained that they didn't just change the world. They dreamed the world so it always was the way that it is now. And there never was a world of high cat ladies and cat lords. They changed the universe from the beginning, of all things, until the end of time. And so understanding that, the Siamese knows what her task must be. Are you strong enough? Yes, I hope so. Then wake, child, my blessing. And she wakes up back in front of the fireplace. And she explains to the gathered cats, if they could dream it, we could change things back. If we believed, if we dreamed, if a bare thousand of us dreamed, we can change the world. She explains that she uh, escaped from her humans that day and has been traveling from place to place ever since. I have walked for leagues beyond measure. 
I have starved sometimes, and often I have been hurt, but I have walked on. In a metal machine I crossed the cold waters. I have preached to solitary feral cats in empty places. I have shouted my message to the stars from rooftops and whispered it to dying cats in alleyways. I have spoken to one cat and to many, and wherever I have gone, my message is the same. Dream it! There are a couple of cool panels on this page. The Siamese tiny on the deck of this wave-tossed ship, and sitting here with this panther talking. Yeah, I also like the panel, another Kelly Jones cityscape here, and it sort of, like, explains, like, cats howling in alleys, which... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is funny. So as the Siamese goes to leave, she passes by the white kitten, who says, Mistress, I believe. Then there is hope, child. And as they go home, the brown stray uh, is saying how it will never happen, because no one can get 1,000 cats to do anything at the same time. That many cats cannot be herded. <laughs> and on the final page, we have the white kitten at home, her humans going about their lives as she sleeps. Yeah, and she's dreaming of a world in which cats are the rulers, and the humans just think it's the cutest thing they've ever seen. Hey, I think Kitty's dreaming. Don, isn't that cute? Dreaming? Hmm, I wonder what cats have to dream about. The way it's twitching about, I think maybe it's hunting something. Some small animal, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, honey, it's really cute. <laughs> I just feel like that's... Pretty universal. Like, any time you see a cat sleeping, like, you think it's adorable, and in actuality, he, he dreams he is your master. <laughs> in his heart, he dreams himself your master. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and it's cute on this page. Like, this is a good drawing of a cat. It's a really great drawing of a cat. Again, like I said, Kelly Jones approaches Sam Keith levels. Matter of fact, he drew more cats in this issue. But, you know, um, nature red in tooth and claw. So that's a fun one-shot. Yeah, that was a really good issue. Once uh, again, we get a character, and then we get that character viewing a facet of Morpheus. This time, the dreams not just reflect, but shape the reality around them. And that's, that's really an issue that I want to call, like, a standalone, not a filler. Yeah, that's a fair call. You know? I abused my authority. That's really delightful. As co-host of this podcast. <laughs> That's really delightful stuff. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that issue a lot. That's probably my favorite of the Dream Country issues. Top marks. Once again, we see sort of the universality of dreaming. We've seen it through a variety of human cultures, and now we're seeing it through something completely inhuman. Yeah. I put good job creating sympathy for these characters. Right, yeah, like it's just, it's such an epic yeah, and the dream world that we see is fantastic, too. Yeah. It, it sort of... You know what this issue kind of reminds me of is Mouse Guard? Oh, yeah. Okay. With, the, like, that that epic quality to an animal-based tale. Yeah. And, and, the, and the epicness and the cuteness so well-balanced. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So, in our next Sandman episode, we'll be finishing up Dream Country. That's right. But, but join us next week for Hellblazer Annual Number 1, The Bloody Saints. Hey, if you like our show, you can check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got plenty more episodes and show notes on every episode.
Hey, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. So if you want to get in touch with us, please talk to us on Twitter at Vertiguys or through Vertiguys at gmail.com. Yes, we are begging you guys <laughs> send in some questions. We need ammunition to do a listener question segment that we're both very interested in doing. So, so send them on in. Or if you don't have questions, you just want to chat about comic books, send it in. We want to hear about it. Or you can write us a review or subscribe on iTunes. Yeah, hopefully you're subscribing on iTunes, and hopefully your review is positive. Uh, <laughs> we, we humbly ask. <laughs> but regardless, thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody.